Hi, everybody. My name is Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the nextlevel.com legal podcast. We have an amazing guest with us today who's joining us all the way from Berlin, Germany. It's my pleasure to welcome Emmanuel Chase, who is a reporter for Deutsche Welle, France 24. She's a published author on a very, very important topic. And it's really our pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aaron. My pleasure. We've got a lot to talk about in a world that supposedly was governed in some way by rule of law, but evidently it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's been going quite a weird way those past few years. It really has. And it's funny, yesterday I was actually interviewed on an NPR segment in the United States and the issue came up exactly, well, what is exactly the rule of law anyway? So let me try to frame it for us and then we can kind of discuss and argue about whether it's even remotely realistic to hope that that same rule of law is going to exist in 2021. How's that for a start? Yeah, go for it. You're the lawyer here. I'm the reporter. So... So, uh, yes, I'm the lawyer. Here. So I, I think that there's basically four universal principles of the rule of law, right? So we all agree when we talk about the rule of law, that it's about a durable system of laws, and it's got, uh, it's got to come along with institutions and norms. So the first thing is there has to be accountability. You can't have rule of law without accountability, as we are seeing this week around the world, when the world turns into the second uh, Senate impeachment trial for former President Trump. There has to be just laws, laws that are fair to a good number of people. There has to be some sense that people know what their government is doing, and this all has to lead towards justice. Does that sound like a reasonable definition to you, Emmanuel? It's fairly reasonable to me, yeah. So, but look at where we are today. So uh, you've, you know, tweeted and written recently and talked about what's been happening in France over the past few years. And that's something that yeah. when we were both living in Berlin, you know, we saw the rise of the right in France and France has an election coming up in a couple of years. So kind of what's your perspective on where we've come over the past few years on this in France? Well, you've mentioned uh, two things that uh, seem important to me. You mentioned institution and norms. Uh, and you mentioned the accountability of the governments that are in place and also the accountability uh, of those institutions. And uh, what I've been seeing those past few years, which leads to the rise of the far right, in my opinion, is that the institutions and norms that have been in place for decades now uh, in democracies, well, they're being dotted at the moment by more and more people who believe um, in things that they read on internet, uh, things that they hear, which more often than not are not factual. And uh, they, there's also the question of accountability. We see that uh, the former president of the United States is uh, currently under a procedure of impeachment for the second time, even if the argument of the Republicans is that, well, he's not president anymore, so it doesn't make sense. But it does make sense in a democracy in the sense that people are accountable for their actions, even if uh, the mandate uh, they had is no longer running. 
And all that, this leads us to what you mentioned, for example, in my country, I'm French, as you might be able to hear from my accent. Well, all <laughs> that uh, here, all that leads, in fact, um, to more and more people dotting the institutions because uh, they also see, for example, politicians which are not accountable uh, for their actions. Um, and there's less and less trust in the political system as we know it. And at the same time, there is still an attempt in democracies, in fun functioning democracies, to hold those leaders accountable. But in a way, well, there's been years and years also of impunity. And I think that really that really shows in people's trusts, uh, trust towards their government. That's such a great point. The element of trust is so critically important. So part of what's been happening over the past few years with the rise of the right, which I think is perfectly aligned with, you know, the rule of law falling out of favor with so many people, is that we've yeah. lost trust in government. And that's what you're seeing in the United States happening today. So is it your sense that this is going to get better? Um, I don't know if it's going to get better. Um, you know, I studied history before I decided to go into journalism. And to me, I see what's happening as cycles. And sometimes it's a virtuous circle. Sometimes it's not uh, going so well. And to me, this loss, the, this loss of trust, I don't know if we've already hit rock bottom when we saw um, the what happened uh, in Washington in early January or if it's going to get worse. Being French, I honestly think it can still get worse because my country can still elect a far-right leader in a year's time. So I'm not sure we've we've hit uh, we, we've seen the, the worst yet. To me, um, I also don't think it's gonna, it's uh, being totally subjective to warn against the far right because I also do not think that uh, there's anything fair about not fighting for democracy and uh, you know promoting a racist agenda. Of course, this makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And it's really interesting that we're finding ourselves here in 2021 having this conversation. When you and I first even knew of each other, it's very funny, by the way. It's funny, but in a way, it's kind of sad and resonant that I remember seeing you of all of the tragedies that happened while I was in Europe. I was always in France for them. And I always remember getting the news from you turning on the TV in Paris or in Dijon or in Reims. And you were actually the one who was delivering a lot of this news for me, even though I was always returning home to Berlin. So it's I found that- news to, that we're delivering. <laughs> but at least I, was get, I knew from you that I was getting real news and not as they've coined in the United States over the past few years, that, that dreaded fake news thing that I know we all, we all hate to hear. Mm -mm. And so, we all fear as well. Of course, and, and you hear over there. So one of the things that I've noted to people who've asked about my experience in Berlin, living there for close to four years, was the dramatic change of what was happening around Berlin over those four years. Because during the four years that I was there, you really saw the rise of the right all around Berlin. You saw it in Brandenburg, you saw it in other states very, very close. Is this something that you felt in a tangible way living in Berlin? I felt it in Germany, but I wouldn't necessarily um, single out Germany here because, of course, every democracy, every European democracy, democracy was up in arms four years ago when the AFD, so the far right party here in Germany, entered the parliament for the first time since World War II. However, if we look at um, 
what they got as a result of the last elections. It was 15% of the votes. And if you look, if you if you compare that uh, with uh, the results in France, where Marine Le Pen scored 40% of the votes against Emmanuel Macron, um, I, I wouldn't say that the situation is particularly dramatic in Germany. It is bad enough. And indeed, there's a, the rise of the far right. There's more and more attacks as well from the far right. And there was a report uh, published last year. And actually, there's a report for this year, which is about to be uh, made public by the Ministry of Interior um, Affairs, uh, about the the danger represented by well any dangers faced by germany and last year well the most pressing danger uh, threatening german democracy was the far right and we've also seen uh, rioters trying to enter the german parliament a few months ago um, so it was not as symbolic as it has has been um, in the us because uh, we weren't in at election time but in here in germany it was really damaging for the image of germany itself that uh, far-right rioters might try to stage a coup here as well image i'm so glad that you raised image it's one of the things i wanted to talk about because you know as a journalist who covers politics you know around the world that image is so important perception is often as important if not more so than what's happening in reality one of the things that strikes me being back on the north american side of things is all of the dialogue about how the united states is perceived and far too little of this dialogue is about how the us is perceived internationally so in your opinion from the time that you started you know, covering politics. How do you think this has changed? And do you think it's something that's reparable? Um, what I find very interesting is that we're always looking uh, across the Atlantic. We're always uh, looking up to the, well, looking at the US and for a long time looking up um, to it. And in fact, that has dramatically, drastically changed during the presidency of Donald Trump. Because, you know, in 2017, Angela Merkel, Germany's chancellor, had said after a G7 summit, uh, the times uh, where we can uh, where we could count on each other are no longer here and she was referring to the difference uh, you know differences in uh, opinions in perceptions to put that diplomatically she had with president trump and i think that really changed over the four years um, of his presidency that really here in europe there was no longer that kind of admiration and you know uh, this feeling of having an ally overseas uh, that prevailed but more so like we were being very cautious um being very scared as well feared like you know you know it's not easy when you're for four years gaslighted by someone who's tweeting his every single thoughts on everything um so the perception has definitely changed and you could really feel a sense of relief after november and even more so after uh, January the 20th, um, when this, the presidency style ha ha had changed, in fact. And that, that's super, really, really relevant points. And one of the things that you've talked about, you know, with gaslighting is the fact that it's very difficult when you've been gaslighted for four years to all of a sudden look at President Biden, an extremely competent and accomplished politician, and just totally fall into a sense of relief that the next four years are going to be better. And here's my reason for saying that. The, there were 74 million people who voted for President Trump in this November election. That is the second largest number of people that have ever voted for a presidential candidate in U.S. history. So does, yeah, yeah. does Europe think that they're all going to go away? 
Um, no, uh, also I, I think as, as much as there was that sense of relief, there's also um, the, the consideration and the awareness that things are not going to change from one day to the next because uh, there's a lot of people who I mean, the US society has really been more antagonized than ever after those four years, and uh, Europe does definitely take that into account for two reasons. Um, first, because what we see happening in the US is also happening in Europe, and we should never forget that. You know, um, there was a Black Lives Matter movement, and we, for a long time, Europe kind of looked at it as if it were an American issue. It is not. It is a worldwide issue, and Europe has a lot to answer for in terms of its colonial history as well. Um, but I digress, uh, digress. I just wanted also to say, that things between the US and Europe won't get back to normal right now, even if, for example, President Biden uh, said that US troops would, for the time being, uh, stay in Germany. That was one of the burns of contention. For example, on the Nord Stream issue, you know, on geopolitical issues such as that, well, you know, Europe still has its own policies. It has learned to deal with uh, geopolitical issues on its own for a while. So it's gonna take a while until all the bridges are rebuilt between, you know, in the transatlantic relationship, I think. That makes perfect sense to me. It really, really does. Um, so you're from, you know, Europe where they have multiple political parties. And for Europeans, it's a very normal thing to have multiple political parties at all areas of the political spectrum. That's not the case yeah. in the United States. I mean, even here in Canada, we have more political parties than they do in the U.S. The last time in the United States, there was a really viable and probably the only time there was a truly viable third party candidate was, I believe it was 1992 with Ross Perot, who got 19 percent of the vote. What Americans are having a real problem wrapping their minds around is what if there is a viable third party candidate in 2024 and they only took a third of that vote. So like six percent. If that 6% were drawn away from the Republican Party, were drawn away from the right, that itself would determine the election. So what's your perspective on the potential for a different American political scene over the next four years as contrasted with the usual, you know, either President Biden runs again or he decides not to and Vice President Harris runs against whatever Republican candidate? Because things could be dramatically different four years from now. Well, I cannot speak for the US only, but I think there's definitely uh, this, uh, this this willing, you know, this willingness, this readiness for change that is coming for newer gener for new generations. You can see all across the world, you know, movements such as Fridays for Future or Extinction Rebellion. They they all saying something about the current system in place, you know, that they no, no longer trust mainstream parties. And of course, this is particularly marked in the US where we have this very binary system between uh, Democrats and Republicans. Um, as a French person, again, and a European, it always kind of amused me to see that, uh, for example, Bernie Sanders would be consi considered as someone really radical, whereas here in Europe, well, he would be a socialist, you know, and exactly. there would always be, you know, that there would be people who would be even more to the left than he is. And uh, um, I think it's very, it is something very particular to the Anglo-Saxon world, where uh, what is considered, you know, um, really radical wouldn't be so radical in continental Europe. 
That, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. It's really such a great point. Um, I think back to my time in Berlin, and this is a story I'm not sure if I shared with you or not, but I realized that every few days there were police cars on our street in the middle of the night. And I really couldn't figure out why until just before we moved, I learned that there was a ultra right-wing political party leader who lived in the building and evidently was doing things on the internet that were against German political law. So the police would visit him every now and then. This person in yeah. the United States political spectrum would be immensely far right, further right than anything that the Americans have wrapped their minds around. My feeling is very much like yours. The vast majority of American politics, even Bernie Sanders and AOC, really are pretty close to the global center when you think of things mm -hmm. that way, but that's not in the American mentality. Yeah, I mean, um, when I see, you know, uh, I the last elections, both in France and in Germany, uh, saw the uh, Social Democrats really losing um, a lot of their support that they've always had, that they've traditionally had, because beforehand they were considered, I mean, if, if you look at the, at the left, like there's still a left party, even even if they're very central. Um, in 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they really had um, an agenda that could be defined as socialist. You know, that they, they were dealing with so social issues. Um, and more and more, we saw those politicians joining the socialist party, but also wanting to rally as many people as possible, also across the spectrum towards the right. And it resulted in mainstream political parties not being really different from one another you know they would uh, have a slight slightly different approach on social issues but they wouldn't be radically different and i think a lot of people are tired of that and are tired of seeing politicians who are not so different than politicians who were on the political scene 40 years ago part of what happens of course when there is radicalization is it affects people in trickle-down ways. There's always a domino effect. So a lot of your own life's work is relevant towards that. You are the publisher, you're the author of a book um, on migrant and refugee issues. So I'd like you to plug your book here to our audience and talk about the work that you've done behind that. Your book is available on amazon.com and global Amazon sites. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a memoir. I published um, my experience, uh, my experiences uh, as a volunteer and not as a journalist uh, during the so-called refugee crisis of 2015 and 2016. What happened back then is that, um, so I'm a freelance journalist and at the time I wasn't necessarily uh, getting as many gigs I would have liked and at the same time I really wanted to report on refugees. Um, but I was on the scene and I was not necessarily getting the work, um, you know, newsrooms were necessarily calling me. So I just decided, well, I'm going to volunteer, you know, I cannot just stand here and see people in need of clothes, of food, of any kind of logistical help in terms of, you know, helping them feeling, you know, filling out a form or something. Um, so I got very invested. Um, in, in that and I, I co-organized um, with others, other volunteers, you know, there were thousands of volunteers across Germany. I co-organized the train arrivals here in Berlin and that's what I write about in the book. I was also a teacher in what is called here welcome classes. So I was teaching German to, to people coming, to, to kids coming uh, from uh, Syria, from Iraq, from, um, uh, from Afghanistan.
it was very, very interesting and completely different to um, anything than anything I had done before. And um, I also think it made me a better person and a better journalist. So it's an experience I, I really am happy to have to have done at the time. Well, and I'm sure that that, you know, you were always, always a very empathetic person, but I'm sure that that worldview really does help you, as you say, so much as a journalist. And I think that's fundamentally tied into what we started talking about in the beginning of the podcast, which is the notion of rule of law, because one of the things that people don't talk about enough with rule of law is that it should be towards an end of justice. And we haven't seen enough of that um, really over the past few years. So I want to go back to the question of, you know, how hopeful kind of we both are that things are going to improve over the next few years, socially, politically, because, you know, the problem is, is that the peak of a lot of this political dysfunction also happened at the same time as something we haven't talked about yet, which is a global pandemic. So those two things. <laughs> a detail, a detail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, am I am I hopeful? I'm I'm not sure right now because um, there's definitely a polarization in society and a lot of antagonization as well between people. Um, there's really um, one of the key issues is that a lot of people are you know are fed fake news you know um, through social networks and uh, this has just begun to be tackled by um, Facebook or Twitter and, and the likes and this has just begun to be addressed as an issue and uh, I'm not sure it would get better immediately. I think really um, what we'll be revealing uh, will be the next elections we're going to see in the next decade um, and uh, yeah you were talking about the sense of justice. Um, I think it's something that uh, as a journalist to me it's really important to deliver uh, news that I know are, are right, that I could, you know, you know, from sources I, I trust. Um, but also, also just as a person, you can never really separate a journalist and um, your own opinions. Of course, you, you have to, to thrive to, to remain neutral. But uh, you mentioned justice and each person has their own perception of what's right and what's wrong. And I think what also makes a good journalist is that you stand by uh, what you think is right and what you think is, is right for, for humanity in general. That's such a great point. And as I said before, I'm a fan of your journalism. Even here in North America, I love whether it's through social media or through the internet. And I'm not a cable TV subscriber, so I get all of my news either through live feeds or stuff. And and there and here comes our reporter from Berlin. It's like, oh, that's you. <laughs> so, and then usually I see something on your feed. So one thing that I do notice on your Twitter feed every day is that you're giving updates of the situation of the virus. And as you'll remember, yeah. I left Berlin just when the virus was really starting to set in. And yeah. we were planning on leaving later. And the Canadian government basically said, if you're looking to leave and come back, this is the week to come back. And this was at the yeah. end of March. And then, of course, things really boomed there. They really boomed here as far as the virus goes. And I'm not one of those people who believed in the people who said, it's going to be fine. There'll be a vaccine and life will be back to normal in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen the rest of 2021 as far as this virus goes? Um, you know, it's it's times of uncertainty, and uh, also I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic because yes, I'm I'm giving 
daily updates about the situation in Germany, but you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, I'm a political journalist, and all of a sudden, uh, we were all uh, made experts in health issues. You know, we had to explain the seven days incident rate, we had to explain how the vaccine work, we had to explain, um, uh, you know, uh, applications that are, uh, that are uh, developed to try and contain the virus by uh, registering the chain of infections. Um, it, it has been a tough year for everyone. For journalists, of course, we haven't lost our jobs. So, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I'm very aware that I'm in a privileged position here. But also, we had to understand things that weren't our job to understand at first, um, so as to be able to deliver the information. And uh, what's happening now, you know, we're we're walking in the dark like just like everyone else just like governments like we're trying to do our best and of course the government is elected to be able to face such challenges even if it's a pandemic even if, if they didn't know you know how to handle it before um, but we're very much in the dark when also when it comes to the vaccination rollout will it go smoothly uh, will it be true that like Angela Merkel said that we will all be vaccinated or have the possibility to be vaccinated by the end of the summer we can only hope but it's also a situation which is totally new for everyone for for the population for journalists uh, for the health system and for governments too Absolutely. And I think that you framed it so perfectly there. We really all in, are all in the dark and we all become fake experts quickly on things, but journalists like you actually become real experts out of necessity. So thanks for that. Um, here's my last question that I want to ask you. So you've been in Berlin for a while. What are your favorite things about Berlin as I reflect back upon some of mine as well, usually? Um, you know, you were mentioning uh, my book about refugees and uh, I had been living in Germany for uh, already uh, five years back then and I never really felt home. But when the refugee crisis uh, hit Berlin, when we saw hundreds of people coming in need in emergency centers, well, even if, you know, you know how Berliners can be, they can be quite rude, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite difficult to approach and to get to know. Well, even if they're not the nicest, friendliest people you can meet, they showed up. They really showed up at that moment. And that is definitely the thing that made me feel, okay, this is my home. And I can definitely, you know, uh, feel that those people are my people too, which is something beforehand I could never feel. And uh, that's probably my favorite thing about Berlin. That's really perfectly said. And it's funny because I heard about all these things about how difficult Berliners can be. But I guess maybe because I've lived in other similar cities around the world, I didn't really notice anything for me that was out of the ordinary about uh, about dealing with Berliners. So it was definitely a great experience. And I'm glad that you're still in Berlin and you're doing such great service through as a journalist. <laughs> and you. anybody who doesn't know the work of Emmanuel Chase, you should find her on France 24, Deutsche Welle, and just search her. You'll find what she's doing. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. And everybody, thanks for listening to the nextlevel.com legal podcast.